0: I'm Matt Bush with BPR News. I'm speaking with Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University as we look at politics in the state as we are counting down to Super Tuesday in the primary on March 3rd here in North Carolina. Chris, thanks for coming in.
1: Yeah, great to be here, Matt.
0: So we had our first primary and first actual results on time last night in New Hampshire in the Democratic presidential primary with Bernie Sanders getting a victory. Just your thoughts mm-hmm. first on those results last night and what you what's your take out of those?
1: You know, I mean, I think we all expected Sanders to do really well in New Hampshire. Obviously, he from Vermont. I think the big surprises are clearly Elizabeth Warren did not do well. It's hard to draw up a state that looks better for Elizabeth Warren than New Hampshire. It's very educated. They pay attention to politics. It's very close to Massachusetts. So the fact that she didn't do well I think is obviously a bad sign for the the Warren campaign. And then the other big story is clearly um, Amy Klobuchar in third place, and I think a pretty strong third place. And I think that reinforces these early contests or as much about beating expectations as they are actually collecting delegates
0: so next up is nevada caucus is there at Mm -hmm. next saturday and then south carolina is the next primary after that again just your thoughts which of these Mm -hmm. candidates is poised to do well in those next two contests before we hit super tuesday which includes north carolina
1: That's right. So I think this is going to be um, kind of make or break time for Joe Biden. Um, So clearly, Joe Biden has not been doing nearly as well as we thought he would. Um, But I think his pitch has been that he will tend to do better in more diverse populations. Iowa and New Hampshire, as we know, are um, sort of the antithesis of diversity in some ways. I think the Iowa caucus was 92 percent white as far as the folks that turned out. So we would expect to see Biden do better in Nevada and South Carolina. Nevada, of course, is a caucus state, so all of the oddities that happened in Iowa we hope will not happen again in Nevada, but they could. South Carolina is um, sort of the first in the South primary, and it is the one that's sort of featured because it's the first time where the candidates will have a large African-American electorate to um, uh, to vote for them.
0: South Carolina's February 29th, Leap Day, just three days later, March 3rd, is the primary here in North Carolina as part of 14 other states that are holding primaries and caucuses that day, Super Tuesday. So looking at the presidential race, what are we thinking in North Carolina? What's going to be big in North Carolina? Which candidates seem poised to do well here right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, to to me, the first thing is just that we are early, right? We, we've always mattered in the general election. We matter in the primary in a way we haven't before. I think in the last round, about a third of the delegates had been cast by the time we cast a vote. This time, it's only about 4% that will have been cast. So we're going to matter in a very real way. Um, again, I, th- I think North Carolina is a good bellwether in a lot of ways. We are a little bit less um, racially diverse than South Carolina in some ways, but certainly much more so than Iowa and New Hampshire. And um, I think we expect to see Biden do a little bit better here. I think the big questions are clearly going to be how much can Buttigieg keep his bounce going early and can Sanders maintain um, the lead that he appears to be uh, developing?
0: Obviously, many other races on the ballot in North Carolina. We've talked about presidential. Let's start going down ballot. We're going to start with the U.S. Senate primaries. Uh, Tom Tillis, the incumbent Republican, does have some opponents in the Republican primary, but expected to win easily mm-hmm. to uh, face the voters for a second term. On the Democratic side, five candidates. Two kind of at the top of this: Cal Cunningham and Erica Smith. Mm-hmm. And we've seen some things going on there recently with a with a pack that has been running ads for Erica Smith, but has a lot of Republican donors in that. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what the motivation might be there to do something like this.
1: Yeah, so so Tom Tillis is um, sort of one of the least popular U.S. senators by most of the metrics we have. So we would think this is going to be the kind of race that's going to get a lot of money put in it. Um, at the same time, he's going to win his primary fairly easily, we expect. And so you've got a lot of Republican donors who are investing money in the sort of the second most likely Democratic candidate, Erica Smith. So they put, it looks like about two and a half million dollars Into a Democratic primary. And so the supposition here is that um, they would prefer to face Erica Smith, number one, uh, over Cal Cunningham in the general election. And if they can't, they'd rather Cal Cunningham have to spend money in a primary that he would not otherwise. So it is a way to sort of push the other party in a different direction, make Cal Cunningham spend money and perhaps have him actually lose.
0: There's a racial component to this because Cal Cunningham is white, Erica Smith is African American, and based on again from what this would seem right now these republican this republican-based pack spending money on ads for erica smith they feel that it is easier for them to face an african-american candidate statewide than Mm -hmm. an than a white candidate is that right
1: no that's i think that's exactly right obviously these candidates differ in all sorts of different ways but the most obvious is race and uh probably second most obvious is gender and so you have a white male facing an african-american female and the republican party again is funneling money into this African-American female um, who, again, has legislative experience, is a good candidate by a lot of metrics, um, but they are funneling money into her campaign sort of on the gamble that it's better for them to face her than him.
0: North Carolina 11th Congressional District. Uh, We have an open seat now with Mark Meadows retiring, maybe out of the office very soon. That's a totally different topic, but um, we have competitive primaries in both very competitive Mm -hmm. primaries. Let's put it that way. So five Democrats running, 11 Republicans running. In such a short time, because again, they all had to register. Um, they all had to file their candidacies by the end at the end of December. So really, only about three months, even less than three months to really campaign here. So how do any of these candidates separate themselves from the pack and really get into the public eye?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is clearly the challenge for all of them. Um, It's it's hard to overstate how big this field is. It's the third largest field in the United States. And over uh, one quarter of people running for Congress in North Carolina are running in the 11th. So crowded doesn't begin to describe. It actually looks a little bit like the crowded field that Mark Meadows was first elected in. So it doesn't mean that you can't come out of a field like this and eventually become a multi-term member of Congress. Um, So I think on the Democratic side, clearly Mo Davis is trying to differentiate himself by making him the, uh, I think his case is he's the more electable candidate. He's the one who's raised uh, the most money by a pretty good bit. Um, I think Gina Colias is is trying to sort of set herself apart um, in a lot of different ways. She will begin speeches frequently by noting she'd like to be the first Congresswoman from the um, 11th Congressional District. Michael O'Shea has sort of been a little bit more on the um, kind of Bernie side and talking a lot about, uh, about younger voters. And then Steve Woodsmall has been campaigning hard, noting that he is the one who's been campaigning longest. He's been in this race um, uh, really for about the last two years. Then of course, Philip Price uh, ran last time and certainly lost to Mark Meadows, but that was a different district. So I think each one is trying to make their own argument or kind of pick their own lane, if you will.
0: That's on the Democratic side. And just to stay on that for a bit, Mm -hmm. even with the Republicans who've been talking, saying, you know, the Democrats are not going to run what they believe a a socialist, very left wing kind of Bernie type candidate. They feel that they're going to try to nominate someone who's very Heath Schuller esque, Mm -hmm. uh, being the Democrat who last won the seat when Mm -hmm. it was configured in this. The district was configured in this way. Do any of these candidates on the Democratic side before we get to the Republican Mm -hmm. side, do any of them fit the Heath Schuller mold? I
1: don't think anybody really fits the Schuler mode in that I don't recall any of them being um, pro-life in the way that that Schuler was. Um, I think many of them have taken some of Schuler's positions on guns and on the Second Amendment. Um, I would think that probably, you know Colias was a Republican until fairly recently and certainly ran in the 10th congressional district as a Republican before so she is definitely not calling herself any sort of extreme candidate um and i think Price Woodsmall and and Davis to some degree you're trying to argue that they are electable and not far left candidates by any stretch
0: heading to the Republican side now 11 candidates We held a forum here. We had to hold two forums just to sort of accommodate everybody with so many uh, candidates running there. With 11 candidates, how do you begin to separate yourselves from anybody else?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's difficult to separate yourself with 11 folks. And um, it's important to remember that in North Carolina, we have a runoff rule, which many states do not. So it's not that the person with the most votes necessarily wins. You have to get over 30 percent of the vote or else we're going to have a runoff election. So I think the first thing they're all trying to do is to avoid a runoff, which could be which would be costly and also drive away voter um, attention. Um, Um, It appears that certainly Jim Davis has name recognition. He is uh, soon to be retiring um, from the North Carolina 50th uh, Senate District. Um, Wayne King has allied himself with with Meadows, was Meadows chief of staff until fairly recently. Um, Linda Bennett has tried to portray herself as the person who's closest to Meadows. She recently received Meadows endorsement. Um, And she's also um, at least has the most money. She gave herself a large loan, it looks like, right before she declared – so if you look at the candidate filings on money from the end of January, she has the biggest lead. Madison Cawthorn, I think, has uh, caught a little bit more attention than a lot of folks expected. He has uh, tried to portray himself as somebody who can get the youth vote, and I think he made a national TV appearance recently. I think Chuck Archer has also been campaigning pretty hard. Obviously, that's a, a, a name that's familiar to folks, particularly in Buncombe County. He ran for Congress before, although he actually said last time I'm actually supporting Mark Meadows, don't necessarily support me. He essentially argued that he was there in case Meadows took another position.
0: What's the way the candidate can really separate themselves in an <laughs> 11, 11-candidate 11 field?
1: You know, I, I think they, they are each going to try to to pick a lane. I think for Bennett, clearly the way she separates herself is to say, hey, I'm Mark Meadows' choice. You liked Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows was reelected handily every year. If you like his policies, you'll like me. Clearly, that's the way she tries to separate herself. I think Jim Davis' case has got to be that he is the one with um, kind of the highest political office that he's held. So he's not an incumbent by any stretch in this position, but he's the closest thing to an incumbent in this field. I think Wayne King is um, going to try to tie himself to, to Trump in a lot of ways. And I think he's been able to do that fairly successfully. And again, I think Hawthorne's case is much more that he is uh, trying to get the youth vote. Um, and so I think each one is trying to pick their own lane, separate themselves in their own way. Um, but it's difficult. It's difficult to break through this much noise, again, particularly when many of these folks didn't know they were running for office until just a few days before the end of January
0: lastly again much has been made about how the district has been redrawn the 11th district it now includes all of the city of Asheville and buncombe county so it gives democrats a better chance of winning but still a republican leaning district as you have said mm-hmm. is there a way that the 2006 election where he Schuler did win and then went on to win mm-hmm. two more terms but is there a way that the 2006 uh, congressional election in the 11th repeats itself in 2020 a realistic chance not just uh, there's chance for anything but is sure. there a realistic chance that 2006 repeats itself
1: you know i don't think so it's uh, um, the district sort of looks similar, but um, it it is drawn in a slightly different way, and, and that slightly can be very important. And I think the district has also changed certainly over the last few years. Schuler actually beat an incumbent, right? Schuler beat uh, Charles Taylor, who was a multi-term member of Congress, and Schuler was definitely to the right. Of all of these folks that are running right now on the Democratic side. Um, there's even been some speculation that the Republicans were trying to get Schuler over to their side as well to perhaps run. So I don't really see a repeat of that. I don't think any of these candidates has the name recognition of Heath Shuler, and they certainly don't have the policy positions of Heath Shuler.
0: Something we've looked at a bit here uh, previously, and that mm-hmm. is the surge in unaffiliated voters in North Carolina, but particularly in Western North Carolina. And you've been looking at this, mm-hmm. Swain County just recently with a In the last two weeks has become the latest county in North Carolina where voters registered as unaffiliated is now greater Mm -hmm. than voters registered as Democrats or Republicans. What does that say about the electorate and in particular the electorate in Western North Carolina? Because as you're about to tell us, many of the counties that Mm -hmm. are where unaffiliated is the highest, are in Western North Carolina.
1: That's right. So there are now 16 counties in the state of North Carolina where unaffiliated is the largest group. Sort of statewide, Democrats have the biggest numbers, then unaffiliated, then Republican. Looks like by about 2022, if current trends continue, unaffiliated will be the largest in our state. Um, nine of those 16 counties are in Western North Carolina, including places like Jackson and Buncombe and Henderson and uh, Madison and Polk and now of course Swain County as we just said so I think To some degree, what it says is this larger partisan realignment that's happened. This was um, a region that still had a lot of these old blue dog, Heath Shuler-type Democrats. And a lot of those folks have moved not from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, but kind of been stopped over, kind of halfway at the unaffiliated. At the same time, when people are moving into the region and young people registering for the first time, they are much more likely to select unaffiliated. So a little bit of it is party switchers. But perhaps a larger number is people who are registering for the first time and are saying, you know, I don't really need to choose a party, at least publicly. I can then choose which primary I'd like to vote in.
0: And Democrats have lost the most amount of registered voters through this sort of switchover. So what does that say about um, their future? And what does it say about the Republican Party's future? It has gained some, mm-hmm. but it is still beneath the unaffiliated voters.
1: Yeah, that's right. So um, the Republican Party's gained a little bit, but it's been fairly flat. If you can sort of gra- imagine graphing this out, it's a fairly flat line. It's moved up a little bit recently. The Democratic Party um, has gone down, and there's no doubt about that. Um And they have most of the folks who have switched parties have switched from the Democratic Party to unaffiliated. At the same time, uh, it may not always feel like it, but Democrat has been by far the largest of our categories in North Carolina. So in some ways, it makes sense that, of course, they would be the ones to lose the most people because they had the most people to lose in the first place. So I think the bigger story in my mind is people trying to decouple themselves from party in some way. And I I do have some concerns about what that means, whichever party they're leaving. Um, Parties are a big way that folks get contacted and reminded to vote. And also to run for office, you pretty much need to be a member of one of the two major political parties. So if you have young people and newcomers not registering with parties, it's a lot tougher to build up that party base of folks who might run for office one day.
0: Dr. Chris Cooper, as always, thank you for coming in.
1: Yeah, thanks. Enjoyed it.